0: You're listening to a podcast appearing on the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. It's been a long several months with stay-at-home orders, a lack of consistent nationwide recommendations of what should and should not be done, and a lot of empty gyms and vacant fields. COVID-19 has certainly thrown all of our lives for a loop. It's also a little humbling to become a less essential physician when a virus is wreaking havoc around the world, but there's certainly been a lot lower demand for a sports medicine physician during this slowdown. But as we start to see the curve flattening of cases and deaths and an actual decline in positive test rates around the country, considerations are needing to be made as how do we safely reintroduce kids back to sports. Missouri, fortunately or unfortunately, received some extra attention this past week as baseball and softball tournaments were already happening less than a week after our governor stopped the stay-at-home order. Social distancing was still to be the norm, however. In many sports teams, when you're dealing with a lot of preteen kids, that's a little hard to enforce and make happen efficiently. In response to this quick restart of sports... Several sports medicine and infectious disease specialists from the St. Louis area, including those from Washington University School of Medicine, Mercy, and SSM Health Systems, worked together to create a document to help guide kids back safely into youth sports. Today on the podcast, I'll be joined by Dr. Jason Newland, a pediatric infectious disease specialist at St. Louis Children's Hospital, and a key part of the team that put these recommendations together to help us hash out what's in the documents and some of the reasoning behind it. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Jason Newland. He is a professor in the Department of Pediatrics at Washington University and St. Louis Children's Hospital. He completed undergrad at Notre Dame, followed by his medical degree at the University of Oklahoma. He then went on to the University of Nebraska and finished his tour around the country for his academic training by completing his fellowship in pediatric infectious disease at Children's Hospital in Philadelphia. He previously was on the faculty as a pediatric infectious disease specialist at Children's Mercy in Kansas City and then came to St. Louis in 2016. He is also the director of the Antimicrobial Stewardship Program at St. Louis Children's Hospital. And also relevant to the podcast, he is an avid sports fan and has three teens who are active in swimming, soccer, and basketball. Welcome to the podcast, Jason.
1: Thanks, Mark. It's uh, great to be here. It's obviously an interesting time for all of us. And, you know, as a pediatric infectious diseases physician, life got really exciting here recently. But uh, I'm happy that we've been able to uh, get to know each other over this time and work on this, even though the circumstances aren't ideal, one would say.
0: Yeah, it's been absolutely trying time for all of us. And you have definitely had a lot busier uh, role in this than I have. And no question, some people have been affected much more than others, particularly those that have had family members or close friends die from this virus. I don't think either of us have ever experienced anything like this in our lives. And now it seems like the peak, hopefully our only peak, has passed and we're seeing a consistent downward trend in percentages of positive tests. And obviously, these these are still uncharted waters, but we're approaching the point where we need to start testing the waters a little bit with working our way back to some level of normalcy. Sports will certainly be one of those things that needs to come back to play at all levels. And we're starting to see some of that and competitive sports come back at a professional level. And certainly it's going to look different at first and possibly for a while. But since there hadn't been much formal guidance for resuming sports, and we were already seeing that some in our area were coming back to play, I think this document we worked on can be a good starting point for resuming sports. I think we're going to start seeing things come at a fast and furious pace these next few weeks from various national organizations offering guidance for sports. I know several released some this past Friday, and I know that there's going to be quite a few more coming out uh, in the upcoming weeks. Let's start by talking about some of the key strategies for resuming sports, Jason.
1: Yeah, Mark, I think we obviously all were getting questions about this as the opening of St. Louis was coming soon, May 18th, as we recorded today on May 17th, and we knew we needed to do something. I think we got together obviously thinking about the key strategies and I think one of the keys to what we have laid out with our recommendations is we're going to we're following the gating criteria that the CDC and White House released many weeks ago. And those gating criteria are basically to make sure that we're following what's going on with the disease so how much COVID-19 disease is occurring in our community. The first gating criteria is that we're seeing what well, we are gonna say is stable or downward trajectory of influenza-like illnesses. Now you should know, those listening, is that if you look at the data from CDC about influenza-like illnesses, they're not reporting that. Because right now all they're talking about is the COVID nineteen cases. Influenza-like illness is kind of a surrogate potentially of just those who are ill, but now we're starting to test more. So gating criteria number two is looking at the number of COVID nineteen cases in addition and Just like in gating criteria, one is making sure that we have a stable or downward trajectory. And then the last criteria is just to make sure that our healthcare systems have the capacity to care for any surge or spike in disease. So those are the three big things in our gating criteria to get us into sports and then to proceed in a phase-like approach into doing more and more things. So starting from we're going to maximize our social distancing, to then we're going to move into, okay, now we're going to do more maybe team drills, to then we're going to start competing with one another, or maybe having scrimmages and then competing with one another. We're going to phase in and we're going to use a criteria to make sure that we're keeping track of what's going on with COVID-19 disease in our area. And I think that's something that could be translated anywhere. We're not saying that this is what you have to do somewhere else in the country or somewhere else even in our own state or region. We think right here for St. Louis City, St. Louis County, and I think we would all agree that anywhere in this vicinity, would be, this would be helpful. I think the second big point besides the gating criteria is the fact that we want to screen people. We want to screen the coaches, the personnel who are going to be there, as well as the athletes on whether or not they have symptoms. These symptoms would include, do they have a fever? We really would like people to take temperatures at the time. Of the participation, but we know that that might be logistically challenging. And so that's not a definitive requirement, but it's there. And then we want to ask about symptoms that one would potentially have in regards to a child, vomiting and diarrhea. Do they have a cough or cold? Do they have a uh, sense of smell or taste? These things would then put a stop on someone if they mentioned, they said they had those. So then they can be seen by their primary care provider and potentially tested. The third big thing is that as you can imagine, or people listening can imagine, is that we list all the different things you need to be thinking about in regarding cleanliness, cleaning coolers, limiting water bottles, just one person's going to use a water bottle, or we're going to use single-use water cups. We're not going to be sharing equipment. We're going to wipe down equipment. We're not going to be using the locker rooms unless absolutely necessary. If someone has to use the restroom, they'll be going one at a time. This maximum of cleanliness, maximizing social distancing, and encouraging hand hygiene will be really essential, I think, throughout, or at least that's been stated throughout our guidance as well as I think what we should just be thinking of these general concepts we must do.
0: Yeah, that absolutely is really important. I mean, it's just common sense principles as far as a general hygiene overall, right? Yes. I think it's interesting when we talk about the overall cases, and I love your take on this because the way I think about this with cases is obviously if we're going to expand testing, we're probably going to see more cases. So do we really need to be relying on the number of cases, or should we be looking more at what the percentages of positive tests are overall as kind of a better test, so to speak?
1: I think this is a really great question, right? Because we are starting to test more now that we have the ability. It's almost... This kind of back and forth because now we're also testing people before they go to surgery. So now that we're ramping up our hospitals or starting to do surgeries, people are starting to admit, we're even testing people that are asymptomatic. Cases even could be asymptomatic cases. And so what does that mean? So you we could say percentage of tests in the sense that, you know, but even that denominator will be, become greater with the fact that we're we're starting to test more asymptomatic. I really think that this this notion of what's happening with our cases in relationship to the amount of testing we're doing and making sure we're seeing what's happening in our hospitals, that all together, I think will be essential to decide how things proceed and how we're doing. I mean, if you look right now, I just looked a few minutes ago before we started talking. If we look at St. Louis County, we've been hovering between 40 and 150-ish cases a day, new cases a day. And it stayed pretty stable. And I think over this week, we might be under the amount that we had the previous week. But I think to your point, where does that fit? Who's asymptomatic? Who's not? And how do we decide that? I think we're all excited. And actually, CNN reported this, depending on how you look at this data, that Missouri is one of the states that has the biggest drop in number of cases per 100,000 persons. Now, that's important for us in St. Louis City and counties because we have driven the amount of cases in Missouri. So suggesting that we're probably doing, I think, better. And I think that suggests that tomorrow, May 18th, some will not listen to this until after that, but opening or kind of starting to opening of our community, I think makes sense.
0: When we talk about screening, you mentioned the temperature of fever. Yes. You and I both know that fever for a patient or, or, or it could be They can just say, oh, my temperature is 99. Can you define for us what really a fever, the way we think about it in medicine, is?
1: Yes. Thank you, Mark, for asking that. That's super important. Fever seems to have a moving target often, but in the setting of COVID 19, the experts from a pediatric perspective have used the cutoff of fever of 100.4, so greater than 100.4. For adults, many people in their screening criteria are utilizing greater than 100. I think it has to be known by people out there listening that fever can be somewhat subjective. If I ask anybody, hey, what's a normal temperature? They'll all jump to say 98.6. I've heard a couple people on the times I've asked to say 98.5 or 98.7, but you get the point, right? It's, it's, just, it's really narrow. If I ask another group, especially pediatricians, hey, what's a fever? Man, I will get a range from because that's what we use to decide a fever in an infant, to 101.3, because there might be an oncology group that uses that. Regardless, the point being is that fever seems can be a moving target in this setting that we're in now, COVID-19. The belief is let's use a less number for fever. Now, why I like 100.4 with a child is because if you look at data from the 1930s, when they basically took temperatures of thousands upon thousands of children, they noticed that 98.6 wasn't where you saw the mean, right? That's not the top of the bell-shaped curve. It was actually shifted to the right, so to a higher temperature. If you would take a temperature in a child around after 4 p.m., which, by the way, as you all know, is when you're going to most likely see your higher temperature due to the fact your cortisol is at its lowest point, there's a great chance you would find 100.1. And if we use the adult criteria, we'd be screening Peter Mark. Mark, sorry, that was a long ID nerdy way of going to answer the question of fever.
0: But it's important because it's all over the board when we talk about yeah. looking at temperatures as far as what people talk about. Yep. Oh, you know, I had a fever. Well, what does that really mean? Or <laughs> right. I run low naturally, so this is a fever for me kind of thing. I think it's really important to make sure that we kind of have at least some sort of reference point that we're looking at
1: and i think i just add to that mark is the fact that people will say well what about the way you take the temperature oral versus across the, the temporal monitors or the ears look there's variability in all of these and there's no you don't add a degree subtract whatever i mean just take the temperature and i would use that temperature yes oral rectal are the best but in this day and age if you have one of those infrared that you're pointing at their foreheads that's fine
0: What do you think about the other screening things? When we talked about putting this criteria together, we have screening questions and we have temperature from a fever. Would any yes answer to those criteria trigger a need to get a COVID-19 screen?
1: One of the things uh, that's super important to know is that fever is only present in about, some will say 50% of children that have COVID-19. Because of what we're trying to do is to limit potential transmission, I think any of these symptoms such as or worsening cough, shortness of breath, sore throat, new loss of smell or taste, diarrhea or vomiting, and even a household contact with COVID-19, those things should trigger, I would say, a test. And I think as we get into this, we're going to have the testing capability to do these sorts of things, but also should trigger an evaluation by the primary care physician so that we're seeing what else is going on
0: when we're talking about discussing all of this as far as getting back into sports and the phases that we talked about one thing that we want to both stress is that this is a moving target where as we go along in this we may have to change our recommendations based on what new knowledge that comes out and i think that's going to be an important part of making sure we're communicating that well to people we talked about some things that we want to have people do and particularly hot topic right now is the use of masks we recommended coaches and umpires Wearing masks. Any thoughts on that? As far as the yes or no, and and how good that is, as far as reducing infection.
1: I think this has been an interesting story to watch over the last two months. Is the the whole mask story as we went from no mask in the hospital to everybody wearing a mask, and then the CDC recommending no masking for anybody that can't social distance. The thinking behind let's have all of our, especially our adults, mask is one we know that adults seem to be better transmitter of the viruses than children. And we know that they can transmit the virus when they don't even have symptoms. By having masks on the adults, we can potentially reduce any chance that they're going to spread that virus to one of the kids, as well as one of the other adults or other people they're with as they're coaching. And there's a potential, though, I think most of us realize that these are cloth-based masks. We don't really know the effectiveness in preventing the transmission, meaning that the person wearing the mask is going to be able to get virus from another person. That's debatable. Some would suggest the only thing we're protecting with a cloth-based mask is the person wearing the mask from giving it to somebody. But regardless, having that covering, we believe will potentially at least protect somebody else and maybe them, though that's not as clear. For us, we believe that this would be the safest approach in this time as we're just starting to open things up. And I think, Mark, as you said, importantly for this document and for what we're recommending is that things can change. The science of this virus could change dramatically in just a number of months. I mean, who knows where we'll be at the end of June if our true cases or even our positive percentage positive tests are down to next to nothing. Will we be following this as we watch what's happening? I think those will be the decisions. And I also think in regards, you know, as we're wearing masks, the other thing that's super important about this document is When we start going out into public, whether we play sports or we're doing anything with people, we have to all understand we're putting ourselves at risk. We're potentially putting our children at risk of having this virus. And we do know overall children have a much less severe disease, though I know many right now just probably said, hey, well, what about this inflammatory syndrome? Yes, there is this rare syndrome that's being reported across the U.S. But again, if you look at the total numbers, it's extremely rare. These are risks. And we just all have to be aware of that when we when we go back to doing things, including when our kids go back to sports.
0: Let's talk about getting back into a practice, who should really be there. And we can lead into talking about spectators as well if, for when we game, start seeing games pop up.
1: I think number one, we want to limit the number of people to maximize social distancing. We don't want the parents, caregivers at the practices. We want them to wait either in their cars or somewhere where they're not at practices. We need to allow the the coaches and the personnel there for their practices just to be there so that they're doing everything they can, as well as with the kids, to be maximizing the safety we need to prevent any transmission of the virus. That's one of the biggest things when it comes to the practices themselves. I think when we get to the spectators, I don't know if you want to get into this now, Mark, but you know the spectators... I think the foreseeable future, we should be thinking as spectators, if we're parents and we're watching our own kids, we need to be social distancing the best we can. And I would recommend wearing a mask because we know when you're watching sports, there's a chance you're going to be in bleachers. And if you're in an indoor environment, for sure, you're going to be around more people. I think mask provides another level of safety that I would do. And if I'm one of these organizers of a sport and I have an indoor sport, I'm going to be figuring out ways of potentially limiting the number of spectators if social distancing isn't to the level that I think we can do.
0: I'm glad you brought up the indoor sport part of that, because I think that's also something that we need to kind of discuss when we're talking about the risk in a sport, the outdoor sports, which fortunately for most of what we're talking about over the summer is going to be outdoors, but there are camps for basketball, volleyball, things like that, and overall Do you see a higher risk for those individuals that are doing the sport indoors versus outdoors?
1: I feel like the indoor sports are going to have a greater risk. And I think most would agree in the sense that the ventilation of an indoor arena is less. And there is a literature, while you could argue it's small and it's from China and how you want to believe it, but there was a paper that looked at clusters of COVID-19. And basically, they had like seven or eight clusters. A cluster had to be three or more. And- there was only one cluster that was outdoor, about eight or nine. The rest were all indoors. so I think it makes sense at least when I, you know you think about a virus and in close contact and you can't you know there's not the airflow. so that's why I feel like the outdoor sports likely will be better off. However, if you're at a Cardinals baseball game or a Royals baseball game or for you, I don't know if you're a Brewers fan, you know a brewers baseball game, I, you know that might be a little too many people, right? Like I think that's when it goes out the window, but still. I do feel like, from a youth sports perspective, the outdoor sports are going to be better off.
0: I think the the Tampa Bay Rays will probably have the best part of getting back in if they're in the sport because their fans are already not there to begin with, so they're already social distancing in a natural way. Anyhow, so. I
1: won't lie that I did. Someone did send me a note at being a Royals fan and said, "Hey, um, the Royals could get back to playing because no one's, you know, they'll, it'll be easy to do social distancing there." Which yeah. is so
0: crazy talking about that since they were World Series champs, what, a couple of years ago?
1: 2015, right before I moved here, Mark. I got to go to the parade and everything. It was like a few months before I left.
0: And you Don't didn't know, but I'm, I'm actually a Cubs fan. I grew oh. up in Chicago and I'm the awkward person here in St. Louis for sure. That's okay. Since yeah. I, I root for that other team.
1: Yes, right, right, right. But you got your your World Series in 16, so.
0: Right after you. There so yeah, go. Yes, back to back. So we, can, <laughs> we have that uh, common bond there. Yes, yes. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back in a moment to talk more about getting back to sports following this pandemic. Make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. Editing podcasts can be ugh, rough. Everyone knows that you'll spend at least double the time you use creating the podcast when editing it. Then there's the control freak factor and the gotta get it right the first time. Well, it's time to shove all that out the door and make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. The Editor Core is a talented, experienced team of podcast editors that have edited tens of thousands of hours of podcast content, and they're ready for yours now. Check out editorcore.com because it's time to make your podcast soar. Editorcore.com. That's editorcore.com. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at PediatricSportsMedicinePodcast.com. I'm going to learn about podcast hosting. After visiting WhatIsThePodcastMatrix.com, you won't have to. And we're back with the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Today, we've been talking with Dr. Jason Newland, a pediatric infectious disease specialist at St. Louis Children's Hospital about recommendations for returning to sports as we deal with COVID-19. One of the things that we did talk about, and we went back and forth a little bit, is the hot tubs, cold tubs, and whirlpools. And one topic or kind of point I brought up is, are we saying that no one could be in a whirlpool at all with this, or a hot tub, or what about pools in general? I know that there's been talk out there of chlorine kills the virus, so you're probably fine in a pool. I think we need to clarify what we meant by hot tubs, cool tubs, and whirlpools. You want to touch down on that?
1: I would say that, at least from a cold tub and heat-related events, I think we have to still remember that we can't let COVID-19 get in the way of just routine care that you would do anyway, right? Like, So if you need to put a kid in the cold tub because they're having heat exhaustion, I think that's super important. There are going to be things, we're, we're talking about that right, in medicine in general, like don't let COVID brain prevent you from recognizing other infections that are still common. I worry about tick-borne illnesses that are going to be starting to roll in here and that we're going to think this is all this new inflammatory syndrome. Regardless, I do think from this hot tub, cold tub whirlpools, we're still going to be wanting to Use them sparingly if we if we don't have to, cleaning them and doing things. But there's still going to be some uses to them. Like you said, I don't think chlorinated water is not going to be a problem. Actually, probably regular water isn't really going to be a problem. It's still going to be just the, the same stuff. Wash your hands, social distancing, You know, don't touch your face if you can, if you're around these people. From my perspective, these things that we use, in sports and for these kids and for athletes in general can be used. Just well, You got to just use that common sense approach that we've talked about before.
0: The big thing we were talking about there is, well, hey, does that mean you can't use your hot tub at your home if you have a hot tub or that luxury? And obviously that's not the case. It's fine to use your own hot tub. We're talking about in the setting more of the athletic training room at a school, although over the summer, most of those aren't going to be accessible anyhow, so we really don't have to worry about that too much. It's just getting a bunch of people together. I know for my kids' cross-country team, when they go and they do a workout and they're all aching in their legs, there'll be six of them in the cold tub at school all at once. That's obviously not social distancing because that cold tub is not that big. That's more what we're talking about in that sort of situation there than anything else we have to talk about a little bit differently how we celebrate and what sportsmanship is going to look like for kids because we're not going to have kids going up and doing the lineup and shaking everybody's hand as they go up and down from a social distancing standpoint, just that kind of that touching any thoughts of creative ways. I see, I've seen some, I saw with the ones that did play baseball this weekend, they did the tip of the cap to the other team, which I think is a great way of looking at that. But it's got to be a little different way. I, I mean, I know for me, my routine for 15 years of medicine is I go into a patient's room and I shake everybody's hand in the room. I don't care how old they are. I shake their hand. And I haven't been able to do that for the last three months. And it's super awkward. But I think it's just it's learning a new way of doing things for hopefully a little bit. But we'll see.
1: Mark, I'm the same way. I have missed the handshake. I grew up in southwest Oklahoma. I grew up in a town of 20,000 people. My dad was a family dog. My dad's best friend was a farmer. I mean, you looked another person in the eye and you shook their hands. You gave them a firm handshake. You know, that's what you were taught. And it's just, that's not what we do now, right? And that it is awkward. We have impressed upon our athletes and our children that sportsmanship matters. And one of the best ways of showing sportsmanship is after a game, it's to recognize them. And it's been so great to recognize them with a handshake or a high five. If that's what, and, we, and saying good game. And while sometimes you're mad, at least it's your time to diffuse and, and go about it because that's what you do. We're going to have to come up with innovative ways of doing this without doing the physical touching and keeping some social distance in the near future. And maybe it is the tip of the hat. Maybe it is the across the diamond show of high five. Maybe it's across the bench in a basketball game. Maybe it's a cheer for the other team or something. But I think somehow we have to think of what are these innovative ways. I can't believe I'm saying innovative ways to end the game. But you know what I mean? Like I think we have to be thinking what are ways to still be impressing upon our athletes that at the end of the game we need to recognize each other. And then we go about our business so that it's not just game over. We move on because that's just an important part of sports.
0: Let's move on to talking about these phases that we recommended and put together. There's a couple of things to think about here. We did put a date in there, and we'll talk about the date and why we think the date is important for us, at least at this point but for me as a sports medicine doctor one of the things that i've been most concerned about in addition to obviously the possibility of infectious disease is kids getting overuse injuries right away of just jumping back into sports and that was my biggest cringe of seeing all these kids starting up their baseball this past week as i know that these kids haven't been practicing and i'm going to start seeing a plethora of kids in my office with sore elbows and sore shoulders because they're just jumping in too much too quick which kind of gets to a whole other topic that I could do on a future podcast about the emphasis on games and the lack of emphasis on developing your skills before you participate in those games, because there is so much emphasis on games, especially in the summer. But we talked about phases, and we recommended June 15th as a start date, which is essentially four weeks after St. Louis would get their ability to start lifting their stay-at-home restrictions. Can you talk a little bit about that June 15th date?
1: I think this gave us all a little pause how we're going to do this. And I think in the end, June 15th makes the most sense from the fact of the biology or the epidemiology of the virus. If you look at when somebody becomes potentially infected or they get exposed to the virus where they're going to become infected, we know that likely they're going to become infected within a two-week period of time. Most people on average will develop symptoms within five to seven days. And those with most severe illness will likely not show those severe illness until a week into their symptoms. You have to realize by, we have two weeks, we're going to get the opportunity to look what happens over one, would say two cycles, to see what's happening with the number of cases in the area from the initial reopening of St. Louis. And then we'll be able to watch what's happening in the hospitals within our region because we, I think, I will say, Mark, one of the things I've been so impressed by our community has been the large health systems coming together to do this together because it sure is making these sorts of decisions easier because we can look at all the system hospitals and see what's happening. That will allow us to do this and we'll have this unified front of June 15th. We know that when you get the disease, it's going to take about two weeks to, to start showing symptoms. That will give us a time to start seeing when we're going to have increase in cases in the hospital, allow us to make a good decision if June 15th is a good time to start.
0: And I think that's really important to emphasize the fact that certainly in St. Louis, we have seen that collaborative effort of all three major hospital systems here. And that was also the basis behind this. Our colleagues at SSM did a great job of starting off and then bringing the rest of us from Mercy and from us at St. Louis Children's Hospital on board to help come up with this document and just bantering it around. I think it was so much more valuable getting input from all of us because we all had a little bit of different kind of take on things and kind of different set of eyes looking at this. And I think
1: it made it a much more rich document to put out. 100% agree. It's been actually a really fun thing to do together and from our different perspectives. For sure. I agree with that 100%.
0: Now we talked about June 15th and obviously part of that is getting started up with things and then We basically have phases that change about every two weeks or so. Can you talk a little bit about the kind of criteria to move up a stage, so to speak, or a phase?
1: What we'll do after we start June 15th is we'll continue to monitor the cases and these influenza-like illnesses and the healthcare system capacity. So going back to those gating criteria from the CDC and White House document, if we continue to see kind of a stable or downward trend, then we're saying after those two weeks, you can go into the next phase. Now, if we start seeing spikes, we start seeing increases, we'll have to make that determination that, hey, we're going to remain in this phase. Or the other important thing about this, the city and county health departments or any health authority can shut anything down. And that we always defer to them in the end. But obviously, I think this document kind of helps people move and understand where we think they should go. Again, I think we'll see. And it doesn't mean we might stay in phase one for more than two weeks. We did allow ourselves that ability. I think we're going to hopefully get into these different phases through the summer. I hope. Yeah.
0: And I'm hoping that that trend will be truly the case and the outcome of what we see. I think another part of that June 15th date that we need to take into account is that we have a lot of recommendations in here as far as what things should or shouldn't happen. And I think if these youth sports organizations and high schools, they want to make these things happen well and follow with these guidelines. It is going to take them some time to think through these processes. I mean, this is a new way of doing things. I'm sure for you, just as it was for me, for clinic over the last couple of months, switching to telehealth, and then also just going on to reduce clinic volumes, and then just talking in general about new processes coming out almost Two, three times daily, it seemed like of how we were doing things with bringing patients into the clinic and things like that. And that's for a healthcare system that deals with this stuff all the time. It's going to take a little effort for youth sports organizations to kind of figure out how exactly they can make this work best for them.
1: Yeah, makes sense.
0: A couple other things to talk about. When we want to get back into sports, one of the things is there is that group of high risk individuals. And so let's talk about those people that we may want to consider delaying their start of their participation
1: coaches as well as the athletes, we need to think about who potentially is at greater risk. And that's the greatest risk of having severe disease as I think we're over approaching 90,000 deaths in the U.S. And then we also know there's a large group that have been hospitalized in intensive care units needing ventilator support. Who are those people? If you look at the most recent data from the CDC, and we'll just say the adults, the adults, the most vulnerable are age greater than 65, those with diabetes, obesity, really severe obesity, but any obesity would put you at a greater risk. Then chronic lung disease, heart conditions, including hypertension, and then any of our immunocompromised individuals. From a pediatric perspective, if we look at the kids, I would say the older kids, so these teenagers are, are probably a little bit more likely to get disease and a little bit more severe disease. Though if you look at the most recent data at who has been admitted to a pediatric intensive care unit, about 75 or 80% have an underlying condition. Those underlying conditions also include obesity. They include diabetes and heart conditions. Asthma is not one that puts you into that severe category, but we know the asthmatics can at least develop, be more likely to develop disease. And then immunocompromised actually, interestingly, is not in the top three conditions that you see among the most sick from a pediatric standpoint. Just to recap, the, th- the seven things that we have on our list that both athletes and coaches need to consider delaying their participation is one, diabetes, chronic lung disease, severe obesity, chronic kidney disease, heart conditions, immunocompromised, and age greater than 65.
0: And I don't want to say that we were remiss in not including this in the document, but, but we do know also that there is a significant racial disparity in those that are dealing with this. And that obviously that could be from all sorts of reasons there, right? It it could be the access to healthcare. It could be issues related to that coexisting of those health conditions. But, you know, we're not obviously talking about that. That should be a reason why people should stop participating in sports, but it is something to acknowledge, right?
1: Correct. I think that's a super important point is the fact that this – virus, this disease has, I think, shown that there's a significant health disparity. It's not that the African-American or the Latino or the Navajo Indian is more likely to get the disease. It's the factors associated with them that they're living in that's put them at these risks. And I think that's important to note is that just because you see somebody that's an African-American, it's not like, oh, they're more likely to have it. It's the underpinnings that they're living with that we know that's present in our countries that is a whole nother hour podcast that I think the sports medicine guys would be like, dude, don't have him on ever again. (laughs) No, we'd still have you on again. Yeah. You're,
0: you're still good. You're still good. (laughs) And I think one other thing to talk about here, which I know is also reflected in the national Federation for high schools document that came out on Friday as well is making sure we're acknowledging the role of the athletic trainer in this because they are going to be on the front line and one unfortunate thing, certainly, that I've seen from colleagues around the country is that this has affected them disproportionately as well from an employment standpoint. Mm. Schools obviously are not having their need for their services right now since sports were shut down. We know that they're oftentimes they're employed by physical therapy facilities or sports medicine groups, and they've had to furlough people as well. It has hit the athletic training community very hard just from an employment standpoint. But we do have some specific criteria in there as far as what we feel is important for them going back into that to protect themselves as well from infection. Can you talk a little bit about the things related to PPE and things like that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the athletic trainers are so important to our young athletes, especially in our high school athletes. I remember, I remember as a kid having the athletic trainer help me with my shoulders from being a swimmer. The things that we feel um, a little bit more than like you know the parent who could wear a cloth-based mask, we really want the certified athletic trainer to be wearing surgical masks. And gloves. And I think when we talk about gloves, I think we need to be really careful in in thinking that, well, the gloves are going to protect me. We got to remember that it's the virus getting onto a surface or getting on my hands and then I touch my hands, whether you have a glove on or not going into your face. Surgical mask will be the best protection. So that's one. Two is gloves, just decrease some of that. But we need to still remember and we want our athletic trainers to still remember, you know, as they change their gloves in between each, each patient, each child, each athlete, that they're washing their hands, washing their hands again, washing them effectively using the soap and water, alcohol gel. And I won't go through my long spiel because this audience knows this. But those, I think, will be important. And then in regards to the, the actual mask, because I'm sure many of the listeners are like, well, how are they going to have all these masks? Depending on supply, we have some recommendations in here. They could use the same surgical mask for up to two to three days. I know at where we work, Mark, that most recently they were saying keep your surgical mask indefinitely until it's soiled or torn. So these sorts of things can be done, but I really believe strongly that our athletic trainers should be wearing a surgical mask, using the gloves, changing their gloves between each person, and making sure they're washing their hands. And then Lastly, it's like their training tables. Those should be wiped down between each patient. And then for the athletes, you know, limiting the number of people in the training room. Ideally, you would just have one. If there is more than one, then they better be in mask If they're in there, all these things to try to help reduce any opportunity that transmission of the virus could occur.
0: That point of being in the training room is really important because you can socially distance. I mean, having worked with several different high schools around the area here and in other places where I've, I've lived and done my training, you can have some training rooms at high schools that are like the Taj Mahal, where they're ginormous. And you can be in other facilities where it's like a back closet somewhere. And obviously, in those situations, if you're in one of those smaller confined training rooms you're going to have to really kind of set things up a little bit differently and and as an athletic trainer probably think about maybe scheduling almost having appointments or sign ups for having these kids come in so they're also not just waiting out in the hallway too but hopefully this will be a moot point as we move into the oh. summer, later summer in the fall. Please. And I think one advantage we have here in St. Louis is this year we do have that one change where school is going to start two weeks later. Yes. And so we do have that little bit of a luxury there to give us a little extra time to get through this and also, again, set up those processes at high schools if we need to. And obviously they're going to have to figure things out too, because I really, truly hope that our kids are back in school this fall. God bless our teachers and God, bless, God teachers. bless all the families that have had to deal with the the nuances of homeschooling and online schooling and things like that. But Hopefully that gets back to some more sense of normalcy and we are back in the schools. And I think we've seen that, right? We've seen that in other countries where they have had kids in school and it seems like a reasonable proposition to have them in school. They're not humongous vectors, at least the way we think about it right now. Right,
1: there's a couple of really interesting commentaries in Archives and Disease and Children and in JAMA Pediatrics. Think of Archives and Disease and Children being the UK version and JAMA being the US version. People basically saying that the younger child, probably the grade schooler, Have them go back to school because right now it doesn't look that they're it's it's unknown. I've got to preface this, it's unknown, but it doesn't appear that they're big transmitters of the virus. I think it's crazy to say that they don't transmit it, but it might not be very efficiently. And also, there's data that shows that they don't actually get the virus like the adults, or at least they don't get symptomatic disease potentially like the adults. It's different than influenza, and I think that's the one thing that everyone should remember is that you know what we're basing a lot of our thoughts going forward is influenza, because that's the pandemics we know. That's what our learning is. And now we have a different one, a different virus that behaves differently. So we'll see. I think, Mark, that we will get the kids back into school. I think the biggest concern is is a fall or winter peak that we saw like with influenza. In a year, we can talk about it and see, see what happens.
0: For sure. It'll be an interesting next six to nine months as far yes. as what all of our lives are like going forward. Yes. Anything before we finish up, we did touch on the fact that this is a living document and we are not the end-all be-all as far as the virus and kind of these recommendations getting back into sports. And certainly we do acknowledge that and they will change if we feel that that's appropriate based on new information coming in. But anything else before we move on to having you give us a pearl of the podcast?
1: Yeah, Keep your eyes and ears open as things change. I think as people potentially are out there developing these guidances, I think it's really important. I think we talked about that being open to change and being open that we might get new data that says we need to go a different direction. And I think that's going to be important for all of us, especially those are, you know, especially people like you and your listeners as they're going forward, because that can be frustrating to the youth, but also the, the parents of these youth, that's going to be necessary to keep in the back of our minds throughout. So how about giving a pearl for our listeners, Jason? Okay. So the pearl of the podcast is kind of two pearls, pearl one, when we go out and start playing sports, there's a risk. Just know that. Pearl two, common sense. And that common sense is what we've been talking about for the last two months regarding COVID-19. It's social distance, hand hygiene, wiping down surfaces. I think if we continue to remember that, that's gonna be important. And, and, and lastly, be smart in regards if your child has symptoms that you think are symptoms, don't go, don't go to the practice do everything we can. I think that will keep us all safe. Sorry, more than one, Pearl.
0: That's all right. We'll give you that. that You're allowed to have two. It was such a good uh, discussion today. I'd really like to thank Dr. Jason Newland for joining me today on the podcast. It's been good to talk through this and hopefully can provide some inspiration ideas for others to work on something similar in your own local area and returning to sports. I'm confident this will be a topic in flux over the next several months and beyond as we continue to learn more and more about COVID-19. Please check out our full podcast library at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Peds sports Pod, that's sports with an S, or through our Facebook page. Subscribe to our podcast or your favorite podcast streaming service, and please leave a review for us. We appreciate your feedback. Thank you so much for listening today. This is Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.